if we would have a transformed view of self, we really need to understand what is happening in this episode of the gospel, the foot washing episode. And this episode turns in two directions. This whole story turns in two directions. In one direction, it, is, it functions as a symbol. It symbolizes something. And then it turns in another direction, and it functions as a standard. So if we would have a transformed view of self, we must understand what the foot washing symbolizes, and we must understand what the foot washing standardizes. So we need to understand a symbol. We need to understand a standard. Let's look first at the symbol. So two-part message. We're talking about foot washing. We're talking about what it means to have a transformed view of self. And if you want a transformed view of self, if you actually want to live the way these, the, the, the example of the Marines, then you'll need a transformed view of self. And that's going to come through understanding this foot washing as a symbol and as a standard. Let's talk about symbol but let's talk about what's going on here in this text. You are not as shocked as you should be in reading this passage. When Jesus did this, it was a mind-blowing experience. They had absolutely... No category for understanding what was taking place. Now, contextually, remember, this is the third Passover that we've experienced in Gospels John. So, in the Gospel of John. And so, we are very near the end of Jesus' life. Even though we've got a lot more chapters of John to go, John slows down in these last few days of Jesus' life. Jesus is on his way to the cross, and this is Jesus' last dinner with his friends, the disciples. This is significant. Jesus says that this is clearly an act of love. It's significant because it, it depicts an act of love. Jesus says to the disciples that you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will one day understand it. What day will we understand it? What he's implying is after I go to, after I suffer, after I die, after I'm rejected, and then I die, then I rise again, and then I appear again, and then ascend. After all that happens, then you'll understand what I'm doing. So we are in a way better place than Peter was that day when Jesus began to wash his feet because we live on the other side of all those things taking place and have this privilege of trying to understand exactly what was going on in this episode of John's Gospel. The reason why this is so, so shocking is because foot washing in that time period was reserved and regarded for slaves. Now, 
I'm not going to make a lot of qualifying remarks here, but slavery in the New Testament is different than, than the slavery that took place in America. Slavery back then was a form of, of debt payment. And so slaves back then could be doctors. A doctor gets into debt. He could become actually a slave. But they retained a measure of dignity, unlike anything that we see in America's history of slavery. So... If you had a slave that was Jewish, they are not allowed to wash your feet. That is too demeaning. You get your other slaves to do that. You get some Gentile slaves to do that. This was an entirely demeaning thing to do. The, the disciples would have never washed one another's feet. Ever. That is below me. So when Jesus, the one that we're learning is the Lamb of God, the one who was, who was the Word incarnate, the Savior, the King, the Messiah, remember, they're holding the palm branches. He's the coming king. When the king takes off his outer garments, wraps a towel around him, taking the, the, the posture of a servant, then pours water in a bowl, and while you're reclined at table, takes your sandals off and starts to wash your feet, this is mind-blowing. We don't know what the other disciples did. Evidently, he got through a few of the disciples, but Peter, he's the guy, right? I love Peter. Peter's not going to stand for it. Like, this cannot happen. You wash my feet? Absolutely not. The other guys must have been awkward in their silence, thinking Jesus is always doing something crazy. So I hope you're feeling something of the shock of this event. And I want to show you that what is happening here is a picture of the strong love of Jesus Christ. John ensures that you will feel it. He, will ensure, he ensures that you will feel the deep, deep love of Jesus. Because he tells us that in verse 3, or in verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus prepared and then accomplished the washing of their feet, including, John wants us to know, the feet of his betrayer. Man, a willingness to put others' needs above our own. If I'm ever going to get to a place where I can do that, I'll do it for the people that I love. And I'll do it for the people that love me back. But a Savior who does it for people who will betray Him? Do I need to connect the dots? 
you've betrayed Jesus. If you don't think that you've betrayed Jesus, you have way too high of a view of yourself, way higher than the Bible has for you. We've rebelled against him. He comes, lays it all aside, grabs a towel and starts washing our feet. A Savior that washes feet is a Savior that goes to the cross. This is a, this is a picture of Jesus' self-abasing love. It anticipates the self-emptying love of the cross. Now, look at verses 3 through 5. Jesus, so Jesus starts to wash their feet, and then John tells us Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was on his way back to God, He knew that he had come from God and that the Father had put all things under his power. Think of the incredible power at Christ's disposal. In the movies, this is not how the people with power treat their enemies. When people have power and they have enemies, enemies get vanquished. We might have expected in this moment for Jesus to vanquish his enemies, to destroy the devil in a show of power, to devastate Judas, the betrayer, with an an unstoppable blast of his anger. You betray me after all I've done for you? How dare you deceive me, Judas? Get out. He doesn't take that posture. Instead, he washes their feet, all of their feet, including the feet of his betrayer. This is a a symbol of Christ's self-abasing, self-emptying love for sinners. Now, there's something else that we should see here, and it's actually not hard to see. I don't know how many of you have had, had this thought going through your mind. One of the last jobs I would not want to, I mean, it's up there, but, but up there is being a podiatrist. I don't want your feet anywhere near me. Feet, like, feet are nasty, aren't they? Like, like it's just, don't you guys feel this way? Is this just me? Is this just like, I, I, don't, like, I don't want people's feet on me. Like, unless you're really close to me. Like, so Amy's and maybe some of the kids. But, like, don't, if you're ever near me, don't put your feet on me. And feet in this culture were nasty times ten. They're wearing sandals. They walk everywhere. It's like these dusty roads. No fungal medicine no the toenail clippers and all like these this imagine peter's feet were nasty big fisherman's feet i don't know if this is where we're supposed to go with this but this is good bible reading this is good bible reading you should think about these things these people are putting their feet and on jesus and and 
Jesus, the king of the world, takes your grossness upon himself. He endures the worst of you, giving you the best of him. Isn't that amazing? That's the kind of savior he is. He, he, he doesn't save us at a distance. He actually drops down into our very worlds and our world and takes on our sinfulness. He takes on our dirt. That's what he did at the cross. He took on our sin. He became sin, the scripture tells us, and then was judged by God for that sin. This is an amazing display of love. And then we see Peter's example, which we've already talked about, where Peter says, no way. First, Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing. But afterward, you're going to understand. Peter blows right by that and says, you will never. No way. Peter's known for this. I will never deny you. The rest of these guys... They probably will, but not me. I'll go with you to the death. Then he won't even own up in front of a 12-year-old girl. So Peter's full of these bold claims. You will never wash my feet. Jesus' response. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. What, what is Peter supposed to understand there? We don't know what Peter understands except this. He knows that Jesus is saying, if I don't do this thing, if I don't wash your feet, then you are not linked with me in any way that's meaningful. And to Peter, that's an unthinkable thought. I've got to be linked with Jesus. I have to be linked with Jesus. So whatever he's doing here, don't just wash my feet. Give me the whole bath. My hands, my head, wash it all. A person, Jesus said, who has had a bath doesn't need to wash except his feet. What's he talking about? If you've been cleansed by Christ's atoning work, You'll still need to have more sins washed away, but the fundamental cleansing can never be repeated. That's the song Dave was leading us in this morning. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. How many times does Jesus go to the cross for your sins? The scripture tells us once and for all. So if you are truly in Christ, even though you continue to sin, those sins have been de dealt with once and for all by the cleansing sacrifice of Jesus. That's what gets you up in the morning, Christian. It's a recognition that your sins, though they are many, shall be as white as snow. How? All in the self abasing love of Jesus and his death upon the cross for sinners. Some of you need to be reminded of that this morning. 
because you're struggling with some sin that you're continuing with and it's got you really discouraged and Jesus wants to remind you that your sin has been dealt with once and for all if you're in Christ. Should you ask for forgiveness for that sin? Sure. Should you communicate your sorrow for grieving the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Does Jesus need to go to the cross again to take care of it? No. It's already done. You're finished with it. It's over. We're moving forward. If we could get that, we'd be happier Christians. The foot washing, I've told you, is a symbol. A symbol is a thing that represents or stands for something else. What does the foot washing represent? What does the foot washing stand for? Spiritual cleansing. It's that your sins have been washed away in the blood of Jesus. All the dirt of your sin washed away at the cross of Christ. All our sins washed away and you're clean. I mean, shouldn't we stop there? <laughs> shouldn't we say, thank you, Jesus, that all my sins washed away, even that one and that one and that one and that one? You mean that one that nobody else knows about but you, God? Yes, washed away in the blood of Jesus. It would be, guys, if it weren't true, it's too good to be true. <laughs> That's good news. Whether you're in Christ or not, that is good news. All of your sins washed away by the, the blood of Jesus Christ, and now you're free. And now you, 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 you live with Him. You have a relationship with Him. You'll, you'll have life in His name forever and ever and ever and ever and ever again. And He's cast all of your worst deeds and your, and your best deeds, or your, your, your best sinful deeds, if there is such a thing. He's cast all those things into the sea of forgetfulness. Does God forget anything? No. He's chosen not to remember the ways in which you have sinned against Him because They've been washed away in the blood of Jesus. Can anybody say, thank you, Lord? Oh, man. If we want a transformed view of self, then we need to understand how you get that. And how you get that is through the work of Christ. You don't get that through your own works. When we were in Ireland recently, we, we took uh, a hike one day. We thought we were just taking a short hike. We, just, we didn't know where we were going. We just said, hey, there's, there's a place on the map that's, that's marked. Let's go hike it. It was called Krogue Patrick. What's Krogue? Road? Mountain. Okay, Krogue Patrick is what it was, named after St. Patrick. We did not realize what we were getting into. This was, how long was it? Like five miles to the top? Five miles to the top, we climbed about 2,700 feet. We thought we were just going for a, a walk, like a stroll. 
guys, there was, this hike was really hard, and there was a th thousand people, thousands of people doing it. The, 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 the mountain was literally washing away because so many people are climbing this. And I was stunned. People climbing it and Chuck Taylors. I was stunned at the number of older people climbing this, like people that I do not think should have been on that mountain. <laughs> Little kids, like people climbing this mountain. And I mean, where's climbing? Like, what, what is going on? Like, I would stop and say, do like people in Ireland like hike this all the time? Oh, no, 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 no. This is a special mountain. This is St. Patrick's Mountain. If you climb it on St. Patrick's Day, and this is rocky, in your bare feet. So thousands of them gather on St. Patrick's Day. If you do that in your bare feet, you will get from God indulgences. He will shorten your time in purgatory. It's a good deed. So some of these people were obviously a little bit confused because they were doing it. It wasn't St. Patrick's Day. And they were doing it in their sneakers. But there was still a sense from people that I was getting that if you, this was a spiritual act. Like if I get up to the top here and I get down, God's going to bless me. Make sure you pray to God when you get to the top. Make sure you ask him to, to cut your time and hell down. That is a totally foreign concept to Christianity. It, ha it has no place in this passage of Scripture. So what would be a more accurate? A more accurate understanding is that Jesus climbs that mountain in his bare feet with a cross on his back, beaten, persecuted, climbs to the top, they stick the cross in the ground, or they lay him down on it, nail him on it, raise him up, he dies, they throw his body like a carcass into a tomb, and he rises again, and you get credit for climbing and dying and absorbing God's wrath. That's Christianity. This is a symbol. All right, stick with me for a few minutes, for got at least 10 more minutes here, and then we'll bring the band up. I've told you that a willingness to put others' needs before our own is going to require a transformed view of self. How do we get this transformed view of self? We need to understand the foot washing as a symbol. It, what does it symbolize? Sim, it symbolizes Jesus, the spiritual cleansing that comes through Christ alone. I've also said it standardizes. The foot washes functions as a standard. And when I say standard, I'm using standard as another word for example or model. Where do I get this? I get it right from here. When Jesus, after he finished, he said, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to what? It's not a trick question. What? 
You should wash one another's feet. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So this is not, foot washing does not function only as something that cleanses us from our sins. It doesn't function just as a symbol. Jesus actually says it's supposed to function as a standard for you. That means that you're supposed to emulate him in this. You're supposed to be, quote unquote, foot washing disciples. In other words, now the sermon turns to application. And the reality of it is, easier said than done, and we don't tend to like application. I like that description of Jesus and that symbol, but now if you're going to start talking about a standard for Christians, I don't like that. When we talk about application, we can be much like the ducks in this Kierkegaard illustration. I love this. Kierkegaard wrote this. On a balmy Sunday morning in the land of ducks, all the ducks awoke, preened their feathers, and waddled to church. When they had found their respective pews and squatted down, their duck pasture waddled arduously to the pulpit. I'm going to trip on that. Terrence, grab that real quick and pull that out before I go arse over tea kettle here. Their duck pastor waddled arduously to the pulpit and opening the duck Bible, he turned to the place where it spoke of God's great gift to ducks. Wings. With wings, the duck preacher shouted, you ducks can fly. You can mount up like eagles and soar to the heavens. You can know freedom from the confinement of pens and fences. You must give thanks to God for so great a gift as wings. And all the ducks in the congregation heartily agreed, shouting, Amen! 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 And then they all waddled home. I say leaders eat last. You say amen. I say the true mark of a church, of a Christian that has been radically renovated by God's grace is a willingness to put others' needs above your own and you say, Amen. But I wonder how many of us will waddle home unchanged by what God clearly commands in Scripture.
Jesus is pushing us, John is pushing us towards this transformed view of self that results in this trait of humility. It's a trait of service, and it goes against, it's radically different from what we experience in culture, whether that culture is a, a culture from the past, a traditional culture, a modern culture, a postmodern culture, secular culture. It flies, it goes against the grain to put your needs above mine. Our natural view of self is so different than a gospel-transformed view of self. Why? Why is that? Because at the center of who we are, we desire to have life centered around our pleasures, our sense of meaning, our sense of purpose, our sense of worth. And so we relate to people as to what we can get from them. The reason why it's so hard to be humble and to actually truly serve others is because we're so filled with pride. We're so consumed with self. We're always, it's so hard to shut off, we're always comparing ourselves to others in the karate line of life. We can't really love and serve other people when we're trying to be better than them. Unless the Lord radically renovates our hearts. So we need the gospel to totally change us, to change our viewpoint, so that we become people who actually, as Tim Keller talks about, are self-forgetful. Tim Keller says in a great little book, you can read it in 25 minutes, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, it's called. He says that a truly gospel-humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a self-forgetful person. So it's not like we have to think less about ourselves. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to... to Think less about ourselves in the sense that what we get from this connection, what we get from this relationship. Gospel humility is being able to stand in a room of people and not thinking about how it all connects to me. It's not needing to connect everything back to me. I find that so difficult to do. I enter rooms, even like today, and I think about how this all connects to me. I need a radical renovation of self in order to see how does this connect to you. And when Jesus does a, that incredible work in your heart where you're looking to him for your worth and your identity, you're actually set free to do the kind of thing that Jesus does in this episode. You're free to serve others. And you actually can experience joy in doing so. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. There's this rest we find in Christ when we're secure in Him, when we're cleansed in Him, we're walking in the Spirit, we've got a transformed view of self, and we're freed to serve others as a humble expression of love for Jesus. I want more of that in my life.
Gail Sayers, he played football before I was, maybe when I was very little. I don't remember him as a player. But he played for the Chicago Bears. And I remember he wrote a book. I never read it. But I remember as a kid hearing about it. And the book was titled, I Am Third. And that has always struck me. Who's first? Who's second? Why do you put yourself third? And he said, I think we have the quote, you can put that up. He said in this book, the Lord is first, my friends are second, and I am third. That would be a good title of this morning's message. I am third. Jesus is first, others are second, I'm third. But if I'm going to live that way, I need a radical renovation of self. Jesus says this, though. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He passed right over that. Jesus said, if you actually live the way I've called Christ followers to live, there's where you'll find your happiness. So a lot of us are missing out on happiness because we don't live with the motto, I am third. We live with the motto, I'm first. Isn't that crazy? That's the oxymoron. If you live with the motto, I am first, you actually are an unhappy person because you can never get people to do enough of what you want them to do for you. And if you live, I am second, then, then where is God? Where are others? Jesus is saying you can know real happiness when you live placing me first, others second, and yourself third. Happy. He doesn't say happy if you think about these things. He doesn't say happy if you learn about these things. He's saying you're happy, husbands, when you put your wife's need above your own. He's saying to parents, you find happiness when you put your children's needs above your own. He's saying, you'll be happy in missional community if you show up with the posture, not what can these people do for me, but what can I do for them? He's saying, happy will you be when you look at the needs around you in Downingtown, you look at your neighbors, you look at your parents, you look at all your relationships at work, and, and you put their needs above your own. That's where you'll find true happiness. Church, we don't need more information on this. Will you put yourself third or not? There's nothing more to be said. Will you waddle home or will you change? The Lord first, others second, I am third. Let me get Dave and the band to come. The Lord first, others second, and I am third. Lord, we cannot do that if you don't help us, Jesus. So I pray that you would help us. Transform our understanding of self that we might love you, love others, and put ourselves third. In Jesus' name, amen.